trolling, trolling for ten baggers. Trolling, trolling for ten baggers. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You're here with Joel and Sam. We're here to talk about finding 10 baggers. That's a stock that's gone up 10 times. There isn't much out there about how you find a 10 bagger. So we chat to people about the skills and tools that you need to find it. In the show, we talk to all sorts of guests about all sorts of different things. But just remember that nothing included is advice. Make sure to speak with a professional advisor about your own circumstances before making any financial or investment decisions. Okay, listeners, thanks for joining us. We have today Matthew Baker on the pod. Matthew Baker is a corporate advisor at Blue Ocean Equities, but prior to that, he was with Baker Young on and off for about 20 years. Matthew Baker, thanks for joining us. Not a problem. Welcome to be here. Well, That's really good to rather. That's really good to have you, particularly for us as we uh, dust off the cobwebs a little bit. But perhaps you can take uh, our listeners just through, you know, what got you into the financial markets, you know, what, that sort of thing? Oh, yeah, look, I've been involved in the – oh, the surname's Baker and I work for Baker Young. Can probably, they can probably connect the dots on that one. Um, I'm one of the lucky guys. I, as a kid, used to sit on the floor of the exchange back when we had floors of exchanges um, before the computers had taken over the world, watching the watching the uh, chalkies run up and down and uh, and the stock and the, the brokers of the day sort of settle – Settle their disputes in in the gentlemanly way that they they did in Adelaide. So that's where I started from. And then um, uh, after a, what the crash of '87, had to do an engineering degree because had to get a real job because you didn't get get paid to being a broker after that crash. Um, and rejoined broking in the '90s. So I enjoyed the upside out of the, as a desk jockey out of the uh, the recession that we had to have. Do you have any notable investments? Things that you remembered um, during, you know, particularly some of those periods, they were pretty heady times. Oh, look, they were fantastic times. The um, before I was a broker, I was trading trading the uh, the penny dreadfuls, I suppose you'd call them, and and arbitraging between states. That was fun. Um, once I became a broker and started, you know, the desk jockey stuff, spent a lot of time in the biotech space. So, um, and and you can tell people's age when you pull out words like peptech or peptide back in the day. I was one of about three biotech stocks, and um, that's where you learn about volatility. That thing would move like a buck, buck 50 in a day, randomly in any direction. Um, and I was only about a $2 stock at the time, so it was entertaining. Um, it was also fun. Back then, the internet was new. God, this is how old I really am. The internet was new, and we could actually find online that the company got a patent, of, uh, had been uh, got a patent applied to it, before the company even knew about it. So there was a bit of um, fast trading on that. It was, it was a very interesting time. Yeah, perhaps you can just give us a little bit of um, information about the arbitraging between states. I mean, probably most of our listeners, most people that are probably trading now didn't even, probably weren't even aware of that. I mean, the only reference I've got it is to the um, the Poseidon story and that um, Money Miners, that um, book from the, uh, the 70s, yeah. you know, that talked well, about that. Well, back before they, back, Back before they had computers, um, or they had some weird thing that they called a computer. Trust me, you, you, your calculator is a lot stronger than that. Um, each each state had its own exchange, and they would do their own settling through the through the floor. So if I found in Adelaide, I could buy a stock at you know, say ten cents, and there was a so I'm buying at ten, and I could sell it at twelve in Sydney. 
I could actually buy it at 10 in Adelaide and I'd just bring the Sydney broker and sell it at 12 and make an instant two cents. The uh, other fun part was no no real settlement time. So I had a bit of time to pay for it and a bit of time to get my money back. It was a very loose and and open times. I mean, we, we didn't have KYC and AML back then. So you could set up accounts easy. You could move money. Everything was a lot easier. Um, and that sort of flowed, actually flowed quite nicely when, when the computers came in. You could sit there, uh, the, the operator, the guy who puts the orders in, D, the dealer or DTR, I can never remember what he's called. He, he could actually know what state and what office was actually doing the transaction. So while all that was available, so before we went anonymous, we, we could actually ring a broker up in, you know, in, up in Noosa, ring up one of the Morgans guys and say, hey, look, I know you're selling a line of stock. Can I buy it off you? What price do you want? So it was, it was still very gentlemanly uh, at that stage. And now I think it's um, everything's anonymous, which is to make it better, but it also means you don't know what's coming in. You can't take you, you can't make a phone call and say, mate, I can see you're selling a line. I'd like to buy it off you, which I thought was a more efficient way of dealing with markets. And perhaps fast forwarding to what got you into um Baker Young. Um like how did it all start out, mate? I was that was fun. Um I was working as an engineer and got a phone call from from Baker Young, basically actually from my old man, going, uh, we've just had two advisors leave. Would you like a job? So um, I, I slid into Baker Young, picked up a, a, well, it wasn't a lucrative client base at the time, but I recognised most of the names. And I did come from Adelaide. It's a very small place. Or at least recognised surnames. So I've got, this actually looks a lot better than it was. So um, that, that was my start. And then all I really had to do, and the only way I knew how to do broking at that stage was just get on the phones. Thanks, Matt. So you, as you were saying, you started making these phone calls to brokers and, and and starting to build your craft that way? Yeah, I mean, when I first started, um, probably the easy way. So I had my list and my phone numbers and didn't really know. I knew some of them and, and recognised surnames. I actually sat next to a a, a phenomenal broker, <laughs> and he's still he's still with Bake Young, it's Mark Potter, and he had – so I'd listen to him, and he'd be, sell, he'd be doing a pitch on a stock. So all I could ever get was half the phone call. So I get his half, couldn't hear the other side, obviously. It was up against his ear. It's back when phones had cords connecting him to the walls and shit. Um, so while he's doing that, I'm picking that up. So then I'm just jumping on the phones and replicating what he was doing because basically I was fairly green. But it became a fairly efficient way of actually learning how to broker because you can guess what the other guy's saying and the questions are asking. And then um, I discovered very quickly. So strategy, sit next to sit next to Mark learn what Mark does and rinse and repeat. Snag was never rinse and repeat or do the first. I, I had a rule, the first five calls were to the clients I really didn't think I was going to get an order from anyway because generally I'd bugger it up. Um, yeah, They'd ask me a question, i go, I've got no idea what the answer to that is. <laughs> this is just not good. But you knock five of those off and then all of a sudden you go, now I've got it humming, I've got the pitch, I've got the story, and I can, I can go straight in and hit the good client base. The only time you ever got caught caught short and I, and I had to develop a strategy around that was you ring someone who you think, you know, and I sort of did dabble a fit, bit more than you should have in, in the uh, in the deadly end, but it was, hey, we all start somewhere. And they'd throw a left-field question out. They'd be asking about an income stock or they'd ask you about a blue chip. And last thing you can do is go, um, because the minute you've done that, well, you've lost, you, you know you've lost the trade. It's like they know you don't know the answer and you're scratching your head for one. So I um, started to cheat a little bit and 
I'm pretty sure this was before uh, post-it notes were invented. It used to stick on the side of my computer. This is my best blue chip. This is my best income. You know, back then we did property trusts. You know, this is my best mid cap. And and I knew my best spec stock. It was generally the one I was running with. So I was having the having all the tools available so you could actually pivot very quickly without hesitation. So there was that level of confidence that enabled you to go straight into the sales call. I was going to ask you there, Matt, what sort of um what the sort of stocks were. So you were you were a bit of a mixed bag, were you, just depending on what the market conditions were and what your clients wanted? Well, uh, yeah, retail broker. So you, you, you ring them up and generally oh, every good client or every good broker who works with their client, they've, they've got most of the money in the blue chip end and that's fairly passive. Um, they've got a little bit in the mid cap end because other ones you're hoping will be blue chips and that's also fairly passive. But you've got to have a reason to ring them. Right, so you need a couple of like fast-moving little tricky ones in there, and they, in a way, they're almost entertainment value, but they give you this thing: if you don't ring your client, you lo- you'll you'll eventually lose your client, and you lose the relationship with your client. So I sort of worked out a lot of my little ones were um, entertainment value. So you, you bring up, you know, we've all got a mix of clients. Yeah, you know, the old ones and young ones, and you you know, you'd have various you know, that that whole portfolio building structure that you do, but the conversation was all about the little ones, albeit it wasn't always the major part of their portfolio. And you'd have this thing and you go, oh, you know, this is Fred Smith. He's a guy that I generally ring once a month. So I'd have a list which said Fred Smith generally ring once a month. And that'd be on a piece of paper. And once I'd rung him, I'd tick him off knowing that I probably didn't have to ring him until next month. Because you forget. I mean, I'd engineer. I think I mentioned I was an engineer in a previous life um, and love statistics. So, yeah, fairly boring. But... If you run the numbers and you sort of crunch how much time you've got and work on the theory, you can make that 15 phone calls a day outbound, which is a lot of phone calls. doesn't sound many, but it's exhausting because you've probably got 15 coming back in. You sort of can only handle a, a client base of about 200 people, right? 200 centers of influence. So that's not 200 accounts, however many accounts that works out to. But you've got to be able to remember them, communicate with them and, you know, there's nothing worse than talking to a guy written, forgetting that you spoke to him yesterday because you you've got too many. So when you've got that, the aim is work out who you have to call and when. So you got your dailies, your weeklies, your fortnightlies, your monthlies. I was very structured. God, I was structured. Um, but you do all that. And then the idea was to actually, when you got a new client, and this is the, this is the biggest risk, and I see it all, and I, I spend a lot of time talking to brokers now, um, yeah, because I'm in corporate talking to them. They're, the biggest risk I see is they'll sign a, and this is scary how this works, they'll sign a big client up this week and they'll look after them this week and you know, get them all set up and get the stocks going. But for some reason or other, they forget about them in about a fortnight because they just, they're not front of mind because they, they remember their old client list and they remember their longer term clients where they have, uh, a, 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 actually brokers have end up with a relationship like friends. With their clients, you know, pretty well. What is it uh, in the in the hierarchy of needs? It's yourself, then money. Um, everything else comes after that. So we're, we're the second most important person in their world. And I tell you, there's going to be a few partners who agree with me on that when they when they hear this story. But the whole trick was, if you brought someone in, you had to sort of work out where they fit on your on your list. Otherwise, you just get to call them, and then they turn around and say, "Oh, you're a shit broker because you never rang me." When you go, well, that's actually just because I forgot who you were. Even with new computers now, it still it still makes it hard because if they haven't got the stock you're looking at, there may be a reason you just don't ring them. Um, you know, they don't have the stocks you got and you forget that, oh, yeah, 
he likes a he likes this particular blue chip, and you go, well, you only ring them once a month. But anyway, um, it's that whole angle there of trying to remember who you're dealing with, trying to, and you talk to all the guys being around a long time. They don't like to get rid of the tail, but they focus on that top, those top 100, 200 clients. So, Matt, this is brilliant because there's stacks of stuff I want to ask you. But yeah. when you started out, you talked about the 15 because you're right. Every time you make these calls, you're going to get calls back if you want to have these yep. conversations. And you need to have conversations. You need to keep a relationship, as you mentioned. Yep. But how many calls were you doing when you started out on a daily basis? Oh, well, no, it was all because I, I, I'm a. It was all random, and this is what got me because you sit there, and, and it happens today. Except we didn't have um, mobile phones that you could play games on. So, literally, bored out of my skull, staring at a screen, going, "I've got nothing to do today." And, and then, and then I found that incredibly frustrating because I just sat there and did nothing. And this is in the day, well, actually, it's still still that day. I'm, I'm a commission based earner. Going today, I sat at work all day and earned zero. So I thought, okay, that's no good. So I ran, went through around the numbers, and this is a long time ago. So my aim was to, to get five transactions done a day, right? There's always a good buy in the market. You just had to find it, and you had to find, so whether it be blue chip, you just had to get your five transactions through just to keep the revenue going. Um, and you can see we're a bit more slightly different mentality today, but, but still making it fit the client's needs. Otherwise, you're just going to burn a client. And you'd end up, and you'd make as many phone calls as it took to get your five transactions. The fun part was every now and then you get one guy who did a, you know, he sold something to buy something. There's two in one phone call. It's always a bit of a bonus. And I remember getting days where people flipped a whole portfolio for you. And you go, oh, that was a brilliant day. I just did three days work. Um, and that was, so it's sort of coming back to that requirement of I've got to earn so much a month to make this job worthwhile. Um, and I've got to be able to service my clients. So it, it sort of worked both ways. I'm earning more money because I'm giving my clients better service. Uh, and because I spoke to my clients more often, I knew more about them. So it was so this whole sales scenario became a lot more fluid. So you, you pretty well ring it. You know, if they rang in, actually it's quite funny. You knew if they rang me, they wanted to do a trade. That's always good. But it, you'd have a you'd have a 75% chance of guessing what type of stock they were looking for. So it, it made it very efficient. It made it good. It, it made the conversation with, with clients very good. Um, and because I had this sort of like personal mandate of making so many phone calls in a day, I could actually put focus into those clients, or sorry, into those people I didn't know enough about and I really couldn't get over the line. But you knew just through the things that they were saying that they, they were actually like good high net worth type clients. They'd ask you questions, you know, you ring them and they'd say, they, they dropped things like they might have owned a couple of thousand um, National Australia Bank, which back then they're about twelve bucks. So not a huge number, but back then twenty five grand was a or twenty four grand was a, a a huge amount of money. So you sort of get they drop you little lines like that. So you're going, hang on, you're a good potentially very good client, but I can't seem to get you over the line, even though you've got an account with me. Um, I mean, the guy that I'm referring to specifically in that story, I rang him thirteen times before I got my first order. Because I kept a little tally on him, because it was just—I read somewhere in a marketing thing, you, you know, you've got to ring at least six times before they get comfortable with you. I've got—I've got the thirteen with this dude, but he ended <laughs> up with uh, a really, really nice bloke. End up great mates. He was probably eighty years old at the time. Um, but Matt, I ended up, sorry, yep, sorry, just to jump in there because thirteen times is is huge. I think 
And I think the listeners need to have a think about um, and you're making it sound success easy because I think you've got a very good manner over the phone, but do you want to just take us through some of the, the, the hard parts of that? Like, cause that's, that's a lot of rejection. That's a lot of knockback by the time oh, no, you're no. getting after half a dozen, right? Never, never a rejection, never a knockback, just never an order. Right. Okay. Now, yeah. He, he had, yeah, National Australia Bank comeback, uh, uh, try the West farmers. He, like he had all the blue chip stocks. And you and you sort of have a chat with him, but the, the whole thing about broking is relationship. So he just took a little bit longer. I mean, yeah. Uh, oh no, I won't go that path. I was about to head down a path. I'm definitely not going to head down this conversation. But I sort of <laughs> over time, you yeah, stop smiling. You know where I'm going. But you sort of got to build up a relationship. That once he got comfortable with me, I'm turning over big tickets with him because that's all he ever did. It, mm. So you go, yeah, 13 phone calls is a lot, and it was a lot of phone calls. So, you know, we're talking probably 13 weeks or, or longer. You know, I can't remember how long it took me to do it. But you just ring him up and tell him, I was telling him share prices, talking about the weather. He lived down in South Australia, a place at Gore. Um, you know, I knew the spot. We just talked about other things. So it wasn't always about shares. And, and that was a the, the, the next lesson I sort of learned in this game was if I only ever rang him because I wanted to buy, I wanted them to buy stock, it's a bit like Pavlov's dog, right? Every time, every time that the dog came for food and smacked it on the head, eventually the dog's not going to come to me for food. So with with the client base, I was, you'd ring them and just talk to them, and they say, "Did you want an order?" I said, "No, no, just catching up with your portfolio." And I'm I'm not statistically can't give you the true answers, but it felt like that you do that four or five times, they're either giving you the order at the fifth time because it was a good idea, or because they felt sorry for you because you rung them five times and they hadn't given you an order. You know, either way, it was that whole relationship thing. So, you know, I'm, you put in the work, they pay you the money. Um, mm. And talk to them about their portfolio. Most of the um, – I, I did I, I did an, uh, an MBA and one of the subjects in it was marketing. So one of the things I had in there was, you know, learn a little bit, of, bit more about them and remember things that are outside of what you just do. So, you know, help them do other things. So you ring up, you know, how's that car going that you're renovating? How's this going? How's the house? How's the holiday? You're off on holidays. You know, it's Easter. You're off on holidays again, like you did every year. Those sort of bits of extra knowledge sort of bring you straight into the into that soft spot with a client where they where they can trust you. Yeah, Matt. There's so much here that you're giving out to listeners, and I think it's just really important why we wanted to bring you on, which is, you know, back to the basics of of broking or or having conversations with people. But I can I can imagine there'd be a lot of people that are coming across this, or maybe people that are starting out in the industry or or have been in the industry, you know, for the last five years and. Wanting to know how to start making these calls. Surely there were some tough times, and I, I think you've really nailed something where you said it's about relationships and, and finding out about information because essentially people it it boils down to people relationship skills, doesn't it? It does, and actually you, you, you hit on a really good spot. So in terrible times, sort of like where we are now, if you vaporize, you disappear, right? And because and I, I had a client do this to me, right? So. Good times, you're on the phone all the time because it's good times. And this is before internet, before email, right? So, and text messaging, you know, to do a text message, you had to hit the A key three times or the, the number one. Yeah, it was all done by numbers. It was a pun. No one's going to remember that stuff. But you, in the good times, you're busy, you're ringing him all the time. Then times would go soft. And, and this is why I love broking. Every time something different happened, I learned a new lesson. So it goes soft. And then eventually, so you don't talk to someone for a couple of months. And you're ringing them up with an order and they're going, 
you're only ringing me because you want an order. Yeah, and he, well, you did, so it's pretty hard to lie and say, no, no, that's not really the truth. I've just pitched a story to you, though. Um, and then the other thing is, while you're not talking to them and they're worried about what's going on around them, so they've got a bit of fear in the market to doing weird stuff like, like today, they start talking to other people. And they talk to, you know, they go to the pub, they talk to their mate, and he goes, no, no, my broker rings me all the time. So you know that you've just, that client's just taking the first step to leaving. Yet if you've been on the phone to them on, on a regular or semi-regular basis, they'll be going, oh, no, no, my broker's keeping me fully informed. I feel comfortable. I feel safe. I feel like someone's actually looking after my portfolio and me, even though we're not doing much trading. So you, you it's more about if they only think you're there to make money off them, there's not a really good relationship. If they think you're there to help them and look after them, then that relationship can actually progress through the bad times. And it also, you need it. Hey, look, we, we're not, I, I didn't pick every winner. I mean, I used to sit there and go, my aim was six out of 10. And, and if I got that, I was excited. And that's not great odds, but the, it gets you there. So you need to be able to work your way through the good trades and the bad trades. And that's all through communication and, and just you know, that constant back and forth explaining to them, we thought this was good, but it basically turns out that, you know, it, it was a bit of a dud. And you need to have that relationship, be able to handle and deal with those because if you can't talk, um, I, I sort of really move off subjects here, but if you can't talk to your client because you made a bad call, it's not going to be long before there's no one you can talk to. You just run out of people. So you, you just got to own up to it and eat it. And if the relationship is the only thing that will get you through that. That sort of brings me on. Actually, I was going to ask a bit about the, the two side effect of it and everybody making mistakes is one of them. You sound like you're a well-educated man. You've done your MBA and things as well. So you're obviously a keen learner. But I'm guessing this process of talking to clients actually means they're educating and informing you or broadening your awareness of of the market, of the of everything, as you're talking to these different people more often than perhaps somebody else is as well. Oh, they have ideas. So they'll say, oh, I, th- I saw this. I, what do you think? And I'll go, well, be honest, got no idea. There's Back then, there are a couple of thousand stocks like there are today. And you go, I've got no idea, but I'll go have a look. And every now and then you go, oh, actually, that's a really good idea. Um, or you'd have a client that loves charts and he'd be saying, this stock looks like it's getting ready to buy on the charts. And I'd look at a chart. I'm, I'm one of those uh, stockbroker charters that look at it and say, yeah, I can see a couple of lines here. I'll, I'll run with that. Um, so, yeah, the the education, also the information that clients have is good. I mean, I can throw a really fun story out of that one. Back in the Gaul Creighton days, um, we were getting, and I'm kidding you, we were getting phone calls on a record. So Gaul Creighton was a massive gold run in the back blocks of South Australia, right? It was huge. That's where Helix went from. So a little company went from five cents to like five bucks type thing. It was just, man, and every, all the nearisms were running. But we are getting phone calls from people driving trucks back. Going, oh, I just heard this up in the up in the local pub. We've got to be buying this one. Um, and some of them were quite good. You know, they, they'd have good intel. Um, but yeah, it's clients are fun for that. The value in what you're talking about there, about keeping the relationship and the entertainment value, it almost sounds like um something that you would do every day just to just to pick up the phone, you know, the the excuse to pick up the phone. It's about maintaining those relationships. Well, like in today's world, so I, as I said, corporate guy, talked to lots of brokers. And I think with the onset of HubSpot and email and and, your, and text messages, yeah, you know, we can communicate very efficiently with clients now, um, but very electronically. 
So, you know, I'll, I'll talk to brokers and they'll say, I said, you know, did you send that out to your clients? And they go, yeah, I emailed them. Now, this is the fun part. How, how many emails do you get in a day? We, I mean, I get 200. Um, hell of a lot from Kogan. I reckon he emails me five times a day. But you, you sit there in events, you sit, you're either miss them or delete them or you're just not interested. Um, whereas if you get on the phone and, and I get this when talking even with high net worth as I'm doing a, a placement or something, you get on the phone and talk to them and they go, I actually hadn't considered that. I just ignored it because, you know, I've got too many, got too many other things on my platter today to be bothered to read through that email. So in a three-minute phone call, you can go from a guy who doesn't, doesn't or just not interested or not engaged to get him engaged he might flick you a 50 grand order or a hundred or whatever. Um, and, and that's for the, for the, what I call retail 708s. But the, it's that whole thing. If you read it, you're going to, you'll deal with it later. You get a text message. It might, you might flick back a yes or a no, but you haven't really engaged with it because only so much information you put in a text message. But if you get on the phone, you're, you're imparting the, the storyline so the information that, that was in the email, you're imparting that in a verbal way so the people are good there, but also they can actually pick up your enthusiasm for it or your, you know, your engagement in the deal itself or the opportunity, and that sort of rubs off. Um, and I, I, Actually, I'll flick back. Uh, I mean, everyone's probably watched Boiler Room and, and those sort of movies about stockbroking. I'm, I'm looking forward to the day they make a movie about stockbrokers who are wonderful and nice and helpful to the community. Um, but it, it, back in the early Baker Young days, we used to have the TVs going with, whatever news news station we could get on it and the noise and kept the noise going in the background because it added excitement because that, and that's what you can do over a phone whereas you can't really get that three hard to make a message pop out of your email without some sort of great graphics to say wow you should be buying this um whereas you can do that you can do that just through tone do you think Matt that and look I mean it's important we acknowledge that we're recording this in probably a very difficult period in the markets in 2023. But do you think, uh, you know, without stating the bleeding obvious, um, you know, the the period during 2020 to 2022 with with stimulus and COVID has sort of altered the way people work. You know, people working remotely from from you know away from offices has stifled. And and do you, how do you view that sort of change and and looking at it now? in sort of the prism of, of your change of career and moving to Blue Ocean, et cetera? Oh, I think well, the, the world's changed in the way we work. I mean, if uh, if people went to work every day, so go old school, they go to work every day, they're stuck in work from, you know, eight till five or nine till five, whatever the times were. When you rang them, they were bored because they're at work. They were looking forward to the phone call because you're not work, Right. So that's that's the work scenario. Now we're down to that only a few days a week when they go into the office. But when they do go in the office, well, it's actually a bit more entertaining because they get to meet, you know, Fred and oh, go ginger and and have a chat to them at the water cooler type thing. So there's a bit more, yeah, you know, there's it's a bit more fun just going back because it's like almost novel some days. But when they're at home, they got other things to do. So they're doing their work and they fit their work in with their life. So they get hard people just get harder to engage with because they got other things on. I mean, I know when I I, I used to work from home a lot when I, when I was in Adelaide. You know, you'd have the washing machine going. If you had 10 minutes, I might do a couple of runs with a lawnmower and then come back in to check the markets, do a bit more, rank, make a few phone calls and go off. You're always doing something, the the engaging part with the market and then something which didn't require as many brain cells. Which, that's why I used to love doing the washing. It just didn't require brain cells. The machine would beep at you when it was done. Um, and it sort of reminded me back 
So you go back when everyone had a job and, and they were easy to communicate with. I always found it hard with clients, and this I think relates to today, when they retired. So, so I'm talking with a guy every, you know, once a week I ring him up. He's at work, he's bored, he's looking forward to my phone call. Then he retires, or he or she, they retire. And you ring them up, and now they're actually doing what they want to do. So I'm no longer entertainment value. I'm no longer, you know, I don't really want to talk to you today. Look, so the, the the work that needs to be done because of the work from home, because of people's change in view about work-life balance, it, it makes it, it makes it a lot harder for engagement, I think, for the for the current cohort of brokers um, who, who are having to deal with that. So that's more the, the retail broker end. Um and, and I still see it in the in the institutional end, because but they're in a different way. They're, they're, they're busy with other things, so you know, it's just harder to get through. Do you want to take us through um, your changes at Baker Young? How you moved from broking to corporate advisory, and then and then sort of a move to Blue Ocean? Oh, yeah, yeah, happy to go through that. I mean, Baker Young. I was I was a desk jockey. Uh, I ended up working up in Darwin for about fifteen years, so. Um, took Baker Young up there and then eventually sold it through to uh, Patterson's, who are now um, Canaccord. Uh, and then, and that's, so I was a desk jockey and, and I wasn't, I don't think I was a very good desk jockey. I mean, my clients liked me and we got along well, but I like the, I like the deadly end of the market. And that's just not where you want to be when, when times are tough. And we're talking crash of 87, where that was just my own money. Then you had the recession in the 90s where I was trying to be a broker. You had the, God, uh, in 97, we had the, the uh, currency crisis in Asia. It, then we had the tech wreck in 2001. Then we had the uh, 2007, you know, the, the crash or the, it, the uh, GFC. I'd always argue it happened in 2007. And it's been pretty good sailing since then until this recent little bit of wreckage we've got now. Um, so I spent a few years outside of broking. I, I worked with the federal government in business advisory. And the main aim there was actually learn a lot more about business and and how it functions because I wanted to get into corporate. Um, Baker Young is is a large broking firm in Adelaide terms, but they had their corporate guy and they did, definitely didn't need two. Uh, so my options were to get corporate and Baker Young and you go back to the fold was basically either wait until he leaves or wait until he dies. He was also younger than me, so that, that wasn't going to happen. I was lucky. Um, he, he's a great corporate advisor and he went out and set up his own shop, leaving a a window of opportunity for me, um, which is where I went back in Adelaide. Adelaide, uh, so Baker Young had a a high engagement level with with um, technology and biotechnology. So I, I spent a lot of time in that that biotech med tech space, and I'd had a history in that as well. So I, I basically sort of got to a point where that was my whole focus is is in that space, and there's. I, I moved to Blue Ocean because I'm basically looking for deeper and wider pockets. Uh, and the guys at Blue Ocean are, are a great crew. So you're sort of moving into here where everyone you look at is you know, the best in breed type stuff and, and or stalwarts of the industry. Um, you know, there, there's stories about all of them, good and bad, um, but fun and entertaining. So so it, it was sort of like transitioning on to the, the next level of, of a what I call a really good family type business even though they're not, um, but the, it's a great place to work. And it, I was lucky. I didn't go from one culture to another. They were just similar cultures but different sizes. And you ever give us a bit of a, an overview, I suppose, of what a corporate role is in those? Like listeners might sort of understand, you know, have seen it hurt, seen it banded around, but might not understand what, what all you guys are doing all day long. 
Yeah. Oh, we sit there playing playing on our phones. No. Um, oh, look, I, I, to be honest, I know what corporate is for what I do. Um, when I joined corporate at Baker Young, there, there was, there's no instruction manual. There was no, there actually wasn't. Basically, I just started cold. So in my world, corporate's not dissimilar to private client broking, uh, except my client's a company. So you look after the CEO, you look after the company, you when things when times are tough, you hold their hand because you know their share price is getting slammed. They don't know why. They think they're doing a good job. So the, there's that side of it. So because you, you, you don't want them doing anything rash and silly, you know, like throwing out announcements to support their share price when the, the announcements really don't have any substance or are more likely to blow up in their face six months later. And there's a lot of lot of that does sort of happen occasionally. Um, and then so that's part of my job is to make because you know, the company pay. The company I work for, the listed company or the unlisted company, they pay me. And then the other part is I've sort of got to find out or, or work out who in the market, like as in the advisors, uh, who, who likes the type of stocks that I've got and can I get them to participate in a capital raising? So whether it's an IPO, a placement or a rights issue. So I sort of got to help them with the communication channel and say, look, here's some information. Uh, like I've just come off a couple of weeks of roadshow, so I take clients out and meet brokers so they've got a bit of you know hands-on face-to-face real information about companies so when they talk to their when they talk to their clients the mums and dads and, and high net worths they can actually say no i've met the ceo he's a good bloke he's doing a great job and this is what the company does so it's a it's a whole engagement program but the the core requirement or the core probably the core duty of corporate is to actually help um companies be be funded Yep. Whether it's an acquisition funding or work or working capital funding, it, it's it's to help them do that and do that so they can get the money in the door without barbecuing the existing shareholder base. It sounds right? like you've used some of your existing skills skills there dealing with the shareholder, existing shareholders along the way to yeah. try and, um, and pass it, it on to companies. And and seriously, you know, in, in today's world, there's a lot of companies that have lost a lot of market value, and there's a lot of sort of there's a lot of angry shareholders out there, but. Those CEOs who actually communicate, keep the doors like, and that's presentations, um, regular news updates where they can, but they're you know accurate and concise, and, and not they're not making it up. All those things actually help the shareholder go. Oh look, I'm really shitty. My share price is down, but I understand the company's doing everything I said it should do. I wanted it to do. So this is we just got to wait until the market fixes itself. It's a completely different mindset for for an investor. Um, and a lot nicer for a broker, a hell of a lot nicer for a CEO. Uh, they, they hate it when tomatoes get thrown at them while giving speeches. Haven't seen that yet, but I'm I'm, I'm sure it's going to happen. Could imagine. And just on that, how do you um, pick the companies that you sort of choose to work with? Are you picking the ones that are doing it really well and you want to amplify it, or are you going for the ones that really need a lot of help and you think you could add enormous value? Oh, same as all corporate guys. You look at them and you go, where can I add value? Because what you're after, because you're only in our world, you're only as good as your last trade. Um, you're basically saying, well, you, you don't want something you want something at the top of the game is easy to raise for, but you're on a hiding to nothing because it's very hard to keep that momentum going. Um, so I, I personally, I look for things in the biotech, medtech space and, and tech, but just background-wise, I love that, plus history. But uh, you're also looking for, yeah, they've got, the, they've got a board that's going to listen. I don't mind if they say no. But I like to know that I at least got listened to, and a CEO who can present, or you know that may not be able to present today because they're green, but they'll be able to present in six months' time, 
and they'll be good because it's all about communication. So it's all about understanding markets and communication. Um, and a lot of companies, yeah, think about it. You know, you started up a a business selling lawnmowers. You really don't know much about the stock market. And when you, even though you got a large business and you transition on the stock market, you still don't understand the the little idiosyncrasies of 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 how the markets work. Happy clients, upset clients, uh, hot copper, you know, which is just fun to watch, um, and all those things. And and they sort of your job is to sort of filter that and help them understand what's going on. And that's where I like being anyway. That's that's my version of corporate. I say it's very hard to to put a specific title on what I what I look for, except obviously good technology because I'm, I'm in that space, and and good people. Um, and you just the only thing I like to think to myself the only thing I can't control is the data that comes out. So that's my only risk. You know, did that drug work? Did that software work? Did you know? The market they're after did that end up you know did that exist and could they get there that if that if you only got one risk out of the three it's it's not a bad place to start i was just thinking the whole time uh why you've been talking matt is it's almost sounds a bit like mastery theory you know you kind of you're trying to work with people that are very smart that are good people communicators people that are prepared to learn um you know i like that bit where you said you sat next to the smartest bloke there and listened to his conversations. You know, you, I think you're always got to be learning. And someone gave me an anecdote a, a week or so ago about some people that are green as well. And, and you kind of want to have people that'll, that'll take on advice and mold rather than people that are very stuck in their ways. And, and perhaps we're not doing a, a good job of trying to tie in and why we really were excited to get you on that. And I think, you know, over the last sort of few years, we've we've probably all been guilty as investors of of how the market's been good, and now that it's become such a tough market, I think and these are the conversations we've had sort of previous prior to this recording. Matt, is it's about being really creative and doing things differently and learning off other people. So um, that's why I was just sort of you know keen to hear how you grafted and, and what you've learned. And, and yeah, look, I mean it's. The world has changed a lot. It, it was easy there. I mean, you have, you know, when you can send out an email and you can fill a book in in, in hours, the world's pretty easy. Um, and when it's like that, you take advantage of that, right? Because you're out there primarily to, to you know to do your job. But I think the market, I think the world's sort of gone back. And I've I've even started reading a lot of the well, I call them self help books. You know, things like how to win friends and influence people, habits, or seven habits of uh, I'm trying to think what's the word, effective people, um, and a couple other books. I've been basically going back and reading. Actually, I don't read them. I've got them on um, audio books, so I can sort of listen to them one on the bus and stuff. Um, I, I reckon I listen to it about ten times, and I finally get the book in one piece. But there's little anecdotes that they have that help you do things to stand out in a crowd. Um, one of the fun things, well, I, and don't laugh. I'll, I'll just throw this story in there anyway. I went out and bought a new suit. Well, I was going for a job in Sydney. I had to get a new suit. Um, bought this new suit, beautiful suit. Love, I love my suit. Anyway, it had a uh, lapel pin with a dragonfly on it. And so I go to go to the job interview, and they asked me about the lapel pin. So I gave them an answer. I'm, I'm fairly quick when it, when I'm required, so I, I managed to find an answer that fit why I would have a, a a dragonfly on my lapel pin. And then I was listening to one of these these uh, self help books, as I call them, and the lady was talking about. When, when in a large crowd, people want to talk to you, but they don't know how, right? So they, they don't know how to break the ice because it's very hard to walk up to someone you don't know and say, g'day, I'm so-and-so. 
right? And, it, and I find it hard. So, and she said, one of the great ways of doing that is you give them a reason to come over. And she said, a great reason was a lapel pin. Now, some of my clients are going to be laughing their heads off when they hear this. I now have about half a dozen of those. from. So I've got the company logos as, that I work with as lapel pins. So people will walk up to me and go, that's a funny shape, what's that? And I'll say, oh, that's the logo of this particular company or there's a flask, it's that that company. But it, it enables it enables that ice-breaking situation, which in, in my world just enables me to talk, find another person who knew I was corporate, knows what I do, comes over and talks to me, and then all of a sudden I've potentially got another client out of it. So now's the time to be testing all the marketing theories that you read in these books. Some work, some don't work. Um, you know, and the how to win friends and influence people. You know, that's that's basically oh, back in when I, I ran Baker Young for a few years. You know, if you didn't read that book, I wouldn't hire you as as a newbie. That was like the the Bible of sales. Um, so all those things and and all that's now coming back out just with with an electronic twist on it. So yes, we do more emails, we do more text messages, WhatsApp messages, but we still have to do more phone calls and and human human touch conversations. No, it's it's music to my ears because it's sort of what I do and I it seems like you're very much about process driven, Matt. Like you, you learn, you pick something, you file it away, you, you've got a system. Even when you were early doors when you said, you know, pre-computers, you had systems in place. Is it is is it about process over results? Oh it it's in in one of the actually it was summed up nicely in, in one of the books I read about habits. You make lots of little. So if you make a habit and you do it every day, it becomes it just becomes like uh, memory, muscle memory. You just keep doing it, right? So I, I created a habit where I rang at least I at least got five orders a day, and then I didn't really worry about that because that's just what I did, right? And then you get to a point where you didn't you don't worry that if you're doing five orders a day because your habit is to ring people until you get orders, and you go, oh, Christ, I did twenty orders today or thirty orders. Um, so you build lots of little habits that that make your life either better or simpler. And you know, it's fun. When I read, when I was listening to that book about habits, you go, uh, I can't remember what it's called, um, Atomic Habits. There we go. So this, the little changes make, you know, like going to the gym you know, or going here. Is it, you do it every day. You might not do it perfectly every day. You might not have a great day every day about it, but you should still do it every day. And then it just locks itself in. So part of the the broken world is, you know, you watch the good, I've watched the good brokers, yeah, you know, they read. They get it. They get to work early. They read everything. They know what the market did the night before. They read that they have their system set up so they get the, a pile of news from the previous day or that day of the companies that they're watching and their clients have. So they're never caught unawares. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of them. And this is where I learned from, as I mentioned from from Mark. Yeah, you know, he used to take home back in the day. You, you get an annual report. It printed. I don't think you get them anymore printed. But he'd read one of those on a, like nearly every night. He'd be taking, and that's your, your homework. It it sounds boring, but after a while, it's actually fairly simple. I mean, you know, you've got to understand your your cash flow, your P and L, and your balance sheet, and how they inter- interact. You've got to understand what the what the directors are thinking, what they're doing as part of the strategy. But it's you just build a habit of doing these things, and it becomes fairly simple. It's just habit forming more so than. So the process leads to habit. And habit leads to consistency. Yeah, for anyone that wants to know, that's James Clear's Atomic Habits. I've probably read that book myself several times over. There's some really good nuggets in there. Uh, Matt, do you want to just um, maybe some that will know you very well will know that you work very closely with Paul Hopper. Some regard him as Mr. Biotech. Do you want to? Is there a story about how you, you got involved in working with him? 
There is, but I'm not going to talk about that one here because someone could yell at me. No, look, I met Paul Hopper for the first time back in 2020. Um, I, I was seeding here. I was helping him put a company called Chimeric inside another company that was listed called uh, Suda Pharmaceuticals. Um, the CEO of that was a guy called Michael Baker. No relation. Um, I still work very closely with Michael Baker in a company called Aravella. No, Paul Hopper, uh, he, he's an amazing bloke. I've never met, and he's all about work ethic. So what I've been talking about with um, with clients and customers, he's been doing that with his clients and customers, which are the the, the major oncology institutions and cancer in, in the US. So he knows everyone who is developing new drugs and process, and he understands, because he talks to them so much, he understands them and what they need. So he's been able to have a history and a very long history in a very tough uh, sector of the market to be able to ring people up and say, oh, look, here's a brand new technology. I want to bring this to market. Um, a classic world. And, and he bring he bring people with him that are like, how does he get these CEOs? Stuff things. Uh, Radio Farm, the last one, which is probably uh, probably the worst performing one. I seeded that um, and and did well, and went into the IPO fairly hard and we all sort of, that, that hurt. But he got Ricardo Canavari in there as the CEO, and he, he's like one of the leading um, nuclear medicine guys globally in a CEO role. And look, you can get them for money, but you've got to get them. But these guys, that money is not their driver. Their driver is we want to we want to succeed. We want to be able to develop programs. Now the share price is in the toilet, and we no point pretending otherwise. But you look at what he's built and what the technologies are. Paul's been able to drag in things that 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 could turn that into a billion dollar company. Just today in this market, it's a bit tough. So I, I take my hat off to him. He he networks. He actually networks like a broker. And people would know this back when he was a kid. He was a broker. So, so that's where some of those same skills carry across there. Yeah. So some of those same skills. So he's and, and so and that's and that's what happens. Markets are good and bad to him. So everyone loved him when he sold Viralytics. Everyone loved him for a while there with Imugene and 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 Chimeric and um and then markets turned a bit sour and okay mark the prices are down but he's still available to talk to you know he's got his email addresses for for each of the companies and he he, he I've never known a guy that worked so hard to get back to people and tell them what he can tell them I mean a lot of people sort of ask so when's your next great announcement he goes well mate I really can't tell you that um but he he, he works hard he still believes in all the shareholders. He he still feels for it. Um, so from that side, I, I, I think he's one of the one of the best ones out there. He's just having a rough trot, and I'd probably argue that if he ever came to market with another thing, it's probably the right time to jump back on the uh, Paul Hopper bandwagon because law of averages said he should be okay again. Well, that's a, a good segue. Actually, I was going to ask you about um, maybe from the other side of the fence, from a from an investor's point of view, other than talking to a good stockbroker, um, what do you think people should look out for? In terms of where should they go and sort of seek the information or cues to take? And track records, obviously, one of them. But are there any things that you think are overlooked or maybe too much relied upon? Are you talking information sources? Uh, information sources, or yeah, just how people should approach them. I mean, it's it's all and good to contact the broker and hear what they've got to say. But um, yeah, if they're going to do anything outside of that, where do you, what do you think they should um? Oh, start look, their I mean, okay, I'm biased. Uh, I came from a full service broking world, so. If, if you're going to comsec each rate, you know, like the, the discount broking sites, they, they're great. Um, great way to learn. 
Um, great way to understand the fear and greed cycle, uh, which is basically that translates to buy high, sell low cycle, which is not a great way to make money as an investor. So, I mean, investing is all about the way you feel because uh, I, I throw this out a lot and no one's really given me a good answer. There are very few things in life that you buy purely with the intention of selling. So we're not, we're very well programmed. But I know lots of clients who were phenomenal buyers of stock. They knew when to buy, but they were terrible sellers, right? Both and when it goes up and when it goes down. <laughs> both when it up and down, right? So look, there's full service brokers are, are worth their weight in gold. A good one who talks to you, worth their weight in gold. One that controls you, um, and that's probably why I stepped out of the game. I like the spec end and probably is a bit heavy in it. Um, but a lot of brokers today, I, I watch them, you know, I'll talk to them about one of my little companies and they go, look, mate, I'm only putting two or 3% of the client's portfolios in that space. So not enough to worry about. And they're the good brokers. Yep. They're the ones that are saying, no, no, it doesn't really fit. I'll go, you know, go find another guy to fit that one. But you need everyone. And I always would argue, you know, you should have your own ComSec account. Oh, yeah, sorry, I shouldn't say ComSec. You need your discount broking account. You need your full service account, maybe one or two, right? Um, that way you're getting information from multiple sources, so you'd argue unbiased. And if you've got your own idea, go do it through the discount line and you're paying yourself, you're saving yourself the brokerage that they would have charged because it was your idea and your effort. The only thing I, I sort of put on top of that, you've got to play, play the game fairly. If a full service broker gives you an idea, you do that transaction through them. And people go, yeah, I could get away with it. They'll never find out. And so trust me, we do. Because you'll slip up in a conversation. You, we'll tell you about a stock. And three months later, you'll talk about that stock, forgetting we told you about it. And you go, I didn't buy any of them. Why are you asking about them? Oh, you went and bought them through the discount broker. I think that's it. You, you get cut off on that. Um, so, yeah, look, get everyone around you. Um, friends and family are good, but you know, I wouldn't take too much advice off them. Uh, you, you've got to get it substantiated because they might misinterpret the facts. So full service brokers are very handy. You've kind of given me a really good segue, uh, Matt. What's what's the biggest mistake you see new investors or brokers making? If you've got, if you could tell yourself, you know, it's that question you hear quite often. If you could tell your past version of yourself what you know now, what would you tell them? Um, first rule I'd go with is not all in, all out. Right, it's. I mean, look, you're going to pick good and bad stocks. Unless we're working on the theory, we're picking good stocks, um, and they go. There's nothing goes up in a straight line, and if it does, it's coming down in a straight line. Um, I've seen that too often in my life. But if you, one of the first things I reckon you should be doing, you, you pick your stock, you buy it. If you're making a reasonable profit, you take a little bit off the top. One of the, and then right at the end of my desk jockey career, I, I used to have this concept of every morning you wake up, you look at your portfolio, and you go. Do I really want to have 30 grand's worth of this funny little stock in my portfolio? Now, I only paid 10 for it. It's gone up threefold. It's now worth 30. And you go, I wouldn't buy 30 grand today. I said, why am I holding 30? I'd take some off. And that's that helps you make that decision to take some off the table. You know, and the same thing works in reverse. You know, I, I bought 10 grand's worth of stock. I really like it. And it's currently worth seven. Should I top it up? Do I still love it that much? I should top up to 10, not to 20, trying to double, you know, double up and get my money back. And it's that whole managing risk about how much you think you want to invest in that stock. Now, doing that with a full service broker gets a bit expensive if you're trading in little bits. Um, but 
If you go in, you put 10 in and it gets to 15, the question you got to ask yourself, do I really want to invest 15 grand in that stock? And if you don't, take the five off the table if you're still happy with your 10 in there. Uh, that's probably the most important thing I learned over 20-odd years of broking, um, just remembering to take profits on the way up. You don't make as much money, and that's what that's the argument. But I tell you, when things go pear-shaped, and they do like you know, in the last two years, where perfectly good stocks have been absolutely cremated, you're going, well, it works in that theory. Um, you probably would have bought a bit back on the way down, but you're still in a much better position than you would have been otherwise. Matt, one, uh, one we always ask our, our guests on. It's you know becoming a bit harder, so we won't know to the cross, given ASIC and all that sort of stuff. But um, the whole premise of the show is to trawl for 10 baggers and, and you know, we, we hopefully that listeners have got some skills about how to identify baggers of their own. But have you got anything for any listeners for, for them to go and do their own research? Noting the usual disclaimers, of course. Oh, look, look to be honest, uh, I've got I've got half a dozen stocks on my on my books at the moment. Um, all of them have upside for, for different reasons. And that's why I'm working with them, right? I've, they've got the right management team. I believe they've got the right product. It's just now of the is it's either commercialization stage or the next stage of their development. So which which one's best, which one's going to give the 10? Uh, but if you if you're going purely for the 10 bagger. Um, I've probably got. I'll, I'll go. I'll give you two different versions of that. And and if my clients are listening, I'm only picking these because I'm trying to give a med tech and a biotech, right? Because I, I like them all, and I think they're all going to do well. Um, my my biotech and everyone who knows me knows I'm going to throw out the word Aravella, right? That's that's the ten bagger. Um, in terms of the technology it has and what people have seen happen in mice, the, the risk here is. Uh, as the saying goes, we've cured a lot of cancer in mice or we've cured a lot of mice of cancer, not so much in humans. This is, if if you do the engineering overlay and, you know, apples and oranges comparisons, I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a, a, a very good win. The other one is, is a new client. And I think they've, I think they've got an interesting opportunity because they did a pivot. Uh, it's a company called Respiring. And a lot of people know about Respiri and their Weezo and, and their asthma. They got an asthma device. Um, they're the only FDA-approved device for that for that field in the US, and they got CPT coding, so they get paybacks. But they've actually pivoted, in, uh, pivoted into remote patient monitoring. So they have the ability to rapidly grow revenue. So this is a med tech in, in a true med, the med tech I like. Product's being developed. Product's been proven. Now they're into the cash flow side. Um, and the risk here is, can they do it? Uh, they've got systems and processes and software. They've got it all set up. They're actually doing it for some. The question is, can they get the 9, 10, 20, 30,000 patients out of the US? They know. And so that's your one risk point on that one. But the uh, the CEO is colourful and uh, colourful is the word. And he really, you can, you know, that if he doesn't succeed, it wasn't through a lack of effort. Okay, brilliant. Now you've given listeners plenty to to chew on there. You know, um, skill set and a couple of stocks for them to go and do research on. Obviously, um, Matthew, it's been a pleasure having you on uh, on behalf of all our listeners and, and Joel and I. Thanks for for jumping on the show. Oh, look, really appreciate. It. Love love talking about this stuff. I've sort of lived, ate, and breathed it since I was a kid. So. Any anything I can do to help the industry? Oh, brilliant. And is there any 
if investors or any brokers or anyone want to get in touch with you, where's where's the best way to contact you? Um, look, at Blue Ocean, but as I mentioned, I'm corporate, so I don't actually have clients. So realistically, don't ring me um, unless unless you're a company and you want you want a corporate advisor. Hey, ring me. Um, but the other way is, is seriously go out there, find yourself a local full service broker, and have a chat to them. That's probably the best thing you could be doing now. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Matt. It's been a fantastic conversation. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.